Good afternoon. It's good to be with all of you here at Zoe Community Church. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors at Zoe. Uh, if you're new or you're joining us for the first time, we'd like to welcome you uh, to our service. Um, if I haven't got a chance to meet you, I'd love to do that. Um, as a smaller church, we do like to know everyone, and that's one of the privileges and joys of being here together. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to be going verse by verse through the book of 2 Samuel. We've been doing this for a while now. A couple of weeks ago, we arrived at 2 Samuel 7, where God makes his covenant with David. And this is one of the most important chapters in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, where the Davidic covenant is made by God. God promises that his plan of redemption for all mankind is going to involve the house or the royal line of David, that one day one of David's descendants will have a rule and a kingdom that will be established Forever And this, as we talked about, points us to Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. And that leads us to the passage today, 2 Samuel 7, verses 18 through 29, which is a response to this promise from David. So we're going to read the text, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into our time in the Word together. 2 Samuel 7, verses 18 through 29. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you, for you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you this afternoon as a church family, united not by our shared experiences, per se, or or even our shared interests, but united by Christ, united by you, united by your grace to us in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that as we come before your word, that we would receive it together, seeking to glorify you with our lives and to experience the good of following and loving you. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Would you rather be a Lord or a servant? Would you rather be in charge or would you rather be someone who was near the bottom of the pole. 150 years ago, Mark Twain wrote 
uh, children's novel, which you're probably familiar with. It's called The Prince and the Pauper, um, and it starred Mickey Mouse. No, I'm just kidding. That's the Disney version. But you might be familiar with the story. It basically goes like this. There are two young men who are living in England, and their names are Tom and Edward. Now, Edward is uh, the prince. He's the son of King Henry VIII. He is going to be the next king of England. He lives a life of luxury and privilege. And Tom is a poor boy with no status in society. He's a pauper, right? He, he's, a, he's a beggar. He lives on the streets of England. He has an alcoholic father, an abusive family. And these two boys are living their life side by side, totally not knowing anything about one another until one day Tom is playing right outside the palace. And as he's playing outside, he gets too close to the palace. He gets so close that the guards actually kind of get him. They they arrest him. They say, you can't be here. This is for royal people only. And they begin to beat him. And Edward, who's in his room, he hears out the window what's happening. And so he goes out. He's intrigued by this kind of interruption to his normal course of life. And he sees the guards with Tom. And he says, stop. I want to talk with this boy. And he takes Tom back with him. And as Tom and Edward are talking with one another, they look at each other and they realize, same face, right? They look exactly the same. They have the same size. And in fact, they're born the same day. They're like long lost twins, though they're not actually brothers, but they look exactly the same. And so like any two boys would, they come up with a crazy plan. They switch clothes. They switch places. If you guys know the story, Edward, who now is dressed like Tom, gets kicked out of the castle, and Tom, who is now dressed like Edward, becomes the prince. They start to live each other's lives. And the story invites us to ask the question of which we would rather be, a prince or a pauper, in charge and on top with people at our beck and call or somewhere near the bottom rungs of society. It's a question that leads us to the passage that we read today. Because in this passage, David speaks to God after God has already spoken to David and promised him this line and that his family would rule. And of all the things that David says, all the ways he praises God and praises him, there's one thing that stands out over and over in this passage. is that David refers to himself as a servant. David calls himself a servant of the Lord over and over again. Now, as we look at this passage, we're going to see why it is that David does this And why being God's servant is actually a wonderful thing. So as we take a look at the text, we're going to consider three traits of God's servant that we find in this passage. And the first thing that we see is the posture of a servant as David responds to the Lord. The posture of a servant. If you look at verse 18, the text begins with David going in before the Lord and sitting before him. David went in and sat before the Lord. And in this coming to the Lord and responding to everything God has promised him, David is taking on the position and the posture of a servant. See, on the one hand, David coming to the Lord to praise him and to pray to him is a recognition that he is approaching someone greater than him. Now, in the first half of this chapter, David is in his palace. He's in his house. He's heard the promises of God. But in response, he doesn't just pray where he's at. He actually gets up and he goes to where the Ark of the Covenant is, and he leaves his palace, and he comes into this place to pray to the Lord. And we can understand what this is illustrating for us. David is coming to him like a servant. In the ancient Mideast, uh, ancient kings would summon others to them, right? So, so the greater would summon the lesser. 
You would have to appear before the higher king. And you know how it is. It's kind of the same way now. If you're called before a court, right, you have to go to the court. The lesser goes before the greater. And if you are a person who has kids, you understand especially how it is. If my kids want something for me, they have to come to me. They're not allowed to yell across the house or to yell upstairs, hey, mom and dad, I want some breakfast. And that's like a free parenting tip for you if you need one. Don't let them treat you that way. Kids don't do that to your parents. But David, he goes to the Lord in order to pray to him in response to his promise. He approaches him as a servant, and the text says that he sits down to pray. And this is an interesting little tidbit, because nowhere else in the Bible does it say that someone sits to pray, or nowhere else in the Old Testament. It's the only time in the Old Testament we hear somebody sitting to pray. Normally they're standing up to pray, or they're on their knees, or maybe prostrate on the ground, but here David sits And the reason for this is that there's a parallel. In the beginning of this chapter, 2 Samuel 7, you'll see that David was dwelling in his house. And that word dwell is the same word in Hebrew for sit. So it's kind of a pun. It's a play on words. I talked about how God loves puns. In the beginning, David is dwelling in his house, and now he goes and he sits before the Lord to pray to him. But it's more than just a pun. The sitting down of David to pray reveals that he has astonishment. To put it in our kind of terms nowadays, it's as if David is floored by what he's just heard. He has to make sure he's sitting down before he can express his heart in response to what God has done. See, God has promised him something amazing, that he would build a house for David, that David's line would be part of God's plan of redemption, God's rule over the world. And what he's heard is so unbelievable to him that he just sits before the Lord and he praises him. David gets a message from God, and in response, he goes in like a servant, absolutely in wonder at receiving this goodness and this grace. And look at what he says in verses 18 and 19. Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. These are not the words of a king, of someone who is full of himself. They're the words of a servant. It starts with the question, who am I and what is my house that you've done so many things for me in the past, right? Who am I that you've done all these great things in saving me and bringing me out of all these trials, of, of anointing me, of letting me have this success in life and become the king? And then not only who am I that you did these things in the past, but that you would promise all these things for a while to come. Everything in the past I haven't deserved, and everything in the future I won't deserve as well. David says, who am I? And the implied answer is, nobody. You're nobody. You're nothing. This is David's posture before God. Yes, he is the king, the greatest human king of Israel. But really, he's just another speck of dust in this world. He's God's king. Yeah, but God is the real king. The Lord is the one in charge. In fact, here, when he says, O Lord God, you'll notice in your Bibles that it's not capital L-O-R-D like it normally is. It's lowercase Lord and then capital G-O-D, which means that the actual translation, the actual words is Adonai Yahweh, my Lord Yahweh. He's calling God his master, his sovereign, his king. And that's why David calls himself a servant over and over again. You can see it in the verses over and over again, your servant your servant. 
Yahweh is the Lord. David is not. David needs God. God doesn't need him. God is great. He is everything. David truly is nothing. The end of verse 19 has a strange statement. And this is instruction for mankind. Well, what does that mean? Literally in Hebrew, what it says is this is the Torah of Adam. This is the law or instruction of mankind. So this is what David is saying. David is nothing. God is the master. And that isn't something that's only true of him. It's something that's true of all of us as well. David wrote in Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Who are we that God would care for us? We're nobodies. And if we're going to get our relationship right with God, it's got to start with understanding who we are before him. You guys know, I don't know, this isn't always said in church, but it should be. We don't deserve God's care. We don't deserve God's affection. We don't deserve God's protection, his blessing. We don't deserve his love. Yet if you grow up in the church, I think you can have sometimes a profound misunderstanding of this. Now, don't get me wrong. God does love you. But sometimes we can hear it so often that we begin to take it for granted. I don't know if that was the case for you. It was the case for me growing up in a Christian household, going to VBS every year, hearing over and over again, God loves you. And I knew it like the back of my hand. God loves me. But what else? If you hear it enough, if you hear it enough and you assume it enough, you start to take it for granted. A few weeks ago, I was in a children's ministry online seminar, and they were talking about all the things we're trying to do to make sure kids know that God loves them. And yes, we want that as well. But we also want you to know that as much as you understand God loves you, you also understand that you don't deserve it. It's undeserved love. It's incredible. And this is the law of mankind, David says. This is what every single person who has a relationship with God experiences, that our relationship with God is not deserved. It is not earned. It is his grace. Why does he say the law of Adam? Why does he use the word Adam? Because Adam, the name of the first man, it sounds like the word in Hebrew for earth or ground or dirt because Adam was made from the dust of the earth. And so what David says here about how God has given him undeserved love and grace, is that this is what every one of us experiences as well. We are closer in worth to the dust we're made of than the creator God whom we approach in prayer. Look at verse 20. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. So David is a nobody. David doesn't deserve any of this. But what is he wowed by in these verses? And yet God knows him. And he gets to know God. See those words? Yet you know your servant and you made it so that your servant can know your greatness. He doesn't just take the idea, Jesus loves me for granted. He receives God's promise as an undeserving servant and he is amazed by it. He praises God for it. The answer in verse 21 to verse 18, why did God do all these things was for God's glory to show to his servant and to his people his greatness. And so what we see first is that the posture of a servant to recognize who we truly are before God is necessary to understand and praise the Lord. 
What instruction for us. If we learn anything from the beginning of David's prayer, it should be this. If you want to know God, if you want to experience God, if you want to understand him and live for him, that no matter how gifted you are, no matter how skilled you are, no matter how blessed you are, you need to approach him like a servant. A few years back, when we were just starting the church, a person was visiting town. Actually, I think he moved to town, and he, he came to visit the church, and he asked me a question at the end of service. I talked to him. He said, you know, as a pastor, I would like your advice. What would you tell someone to look for in a good church? And I was like, well, I guess you're not coming back to this church, right? You're asking me uh, who, what you should look for. But I, I humored him. I answered his question, and I thought about it. And I said, you know what? You should obviously look for a church that is biblical. You should obviously look for a church that preaches the gospel. Those are a given. But beyond that, what, what I think is overlooked is that you should look for a church where the leaders and the people are humble, where they know who they are before God. Now, I'm not saying compromising or weak-minded or wishy-washy about convictions, but not proud and arrogant and full of themselves. A church where the people understand grace and they see themselves as servants. I hope and I pray that this is what we want to be at Zoe, not just as pastors, but as Christians. And why is this so important? Because this is actually where it starts. If you're reading these books and you're wondering, what is it about David? What does he get? Why is God like David so much? Because David understands it's all of grace. David, unlike Saul, he doesn't make it about himself. He doesn't think that he's the main character. He knows that he is only a servant. And nothing will elevate your pride as quickly as losing sight of that fact. Oftentimes we give people a pass as if success or influence can excuse pride, what does the Bible say? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so David begins by praying and acknowledging his position as a servant. He takes the posture of a servant. He humbles himself before God. But here's the thing about being God's servant. As God alludes to, as David alludes to in verse 21, the servant himself isn't great. But as God's servant, you get to experience something. David gets to see something. He gets to know the greatness of God and even participate in that greatness itself. I've officiated a few weddings of the pastor. And I think it's a good illustration of what David is talking about. It's so cool because when you officiate a wedding, right, it's not about me as the officiant. Or it shouldn't be. If you make it about yourself, then you kind of messed up the wedding. It's first of all about God. It's definitely about the bride. It's not really about the groom too much, but it's surely not about me. But when I'm standing up there, I get to see up close something that's really beautiful. And I get to see when, when the bride is coming down the aisle, I get to see the groom when he normally gets teary-eyed, right? That's the moment when he gets all emotional. I get to see people making these vows before God. I get to participate, even though I'm just a servant in the wedding. It's not about me at all. I get to see something and witness something and participate in something. That is beautiful. And this is what happens when we're servants of the Lord. And this leads to point two. We've seen the posture of a servant. But next, what we see in this passage is the privilege. The privilege of a servant. David acknowledges that he's nothing. It's all about God. But yet, the servant gets to know God's greatness. See, what this passage tells us is that to be a servant of the Lord is, in fact, the greatest blessing you could ever have. 
it is eternally significant. It is immeasurably superior to any blessings on this earth. It's infinitely better. And to make it simple, that's all pastor talk. To make it simple, the Bible teaches us that worshiping and serving God is the real way to a great life. Let's look at the text more closely, starting in verse 22. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. Verse 22 begins with a therefore, just we translated for truly, you are great, O Lord God, and there is no God beside you. And verse 24 sums up this section of the prayer by David praising God that he chose Israel to become his people and they, he would become their God. So, so what's the big idea of this passage? What's the big privilege of being a servant of God? The idea is that we are nothing And yet we are chosen by God to be his people. We're chosen by God to have a relationship with him. This is the greatest privilege you could ever imagine. David affirms again this truth that only God is great, that he alone is God in verse 22. And we've heard this before in the books. In the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah is praising God. She's praying to him. She's singing to him. And she says, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside him. And so this is a theme throughout these books that God alone is good. God alone is God. God alone is glorious. And this glorious God as the only God unlike any other is himself the one who gives meaning and greatness to anything in creation. To the privilege of being God's servant is you get to know God. You can imagine if we were all in kind of a great empty stone hall, right? There's nothing in there. It's cold, it's dark, it's damp, and all of us are shivering in the cold And then there is a fire right in the middle. And this fire, this huge fire begins to warm up the room. And we feel it, right? We feel maybe the furniture warming up. We feel the walls begin to warm. We feel this warmth emanating from the center of the room. And these objects that begin to warm up, we find comfort in. But ultimately, that warmth is coming from that fire. And this is how it is with God. This is the picture of what it is with God and this universe. He is the creator. He is the source of everything good. He is the only one who is great. Jesus said, only one is good. And so all this to say that anything good that we see in this world ultimately derives that goodness from him. So for us to serve God, to be chosen as his people, it's not demeaning that we're his servants. It's not something we should recoil against. It's not something that we we should hate. If we understand what David says, what Hannah says, what the Bible says, to serve God is the ultimate blessing. To be drawn near to him is incredible. We begin to see that what God does for his glory is also done for our good. We begin to see that what's done for the sake of God's name is simultaneously done for the satisfaction of his people. Because God alone is great, what is done for his glory is good for us. As we live life on earth, I think this is something that people don't think about that often, kind of looking past the veil, right? We live life, and there are certain things that are just obviously 
attractive to us, right? right? They seem great to our eyes. Things that naturally draw your affection. Wonderful meal or an interesting person or maybe a kind companion, a new groundbreaking idea, something like that. At the same time, though, if you live long enough, you'll know that a lot of times the things that seem so great to us at first, very soon after, begin to disappoint us. They start to feel mundane. They start to feel like it's just the same thing over and over again. Things you thought were great for a moment become tiresome in the next. For you kids, right, a new gift that you wanted so much, it gets unused. It's sitting in the closet. Maybe your hobby that you were so passionate about is now just in the garage collecting dust and your spouse is reminding you about it. That new game or or car or boyfriend loses its luster. What are we supposed to do with that? C.S. Lewis, he once wrote profoundly, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. In particular, made for the creator of this world. See, we all have eternity in our hearts, the Bible says. We have a knowledge of God that we suppress in unrighteousness, But ultimately, brothers and sisters, what the Bible tells us, what we know deep down is that God is the answer we need, that his greatness alone can satisfy. Now, how does this relate to the text? The verses we read about being his servant. Here's how. The satisfaction of our souls, right? This resilient peace deep within us, the hope to live in a broken world, unbroken. They only come from God himself, but there is a problem. We're separated from him. We have a distance between us and him. And the text talks about this, right? The people of Israel, they were in bondage. They were enslaved in Egypt. There was a distance between them and God, metaphorically speaking, because they were not under his rule. They were under the rule of the Egyptians. God is, is a God who rules over everything, and yet his people were in bondage. And so what does God do? He redeems them. Look at the text. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeem, there's the word again, for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. The word redeemed. What does it mean? It's it's to purchase or to ransom. What David says is, in your grace, you chose your people. You ransomed them. You purchased them from bondage to false gods and other masters. You freed the Israelites fully so that they might become your people. And why does he do it? He calls it redemption. So that they could become his people forever. Does it sound familiar to you as a Christian? It should. From bondage to false gods, to evil masters, God redeemed and freed his people so they might come to him. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel message. This is what happened to each one of us if we believe in Jesus Christ. From slavery to sin, from bondage to the flesh, from being mastered by our evil desires, God frees us through Christ. God God makes us his people and he becomes our God. He chose us. He redeemed us. He freed us to make us servants. That we might know his greatness. That we might serve his greatness. That we might experience his greatness. 
He didn't give us what we deserve. Instead, he redeemed us to give us what we truly need. There's an old Puritan whose name was Richard Baxter. Uh, He's famous for being a pastor who would visit the people in his congregation, person-to-person, personal ministry. And he once wrote, Let the word deserved be written on the door of hell, but the free gift written on the door of heaven. What an incomparable privilege to be given a relationship with God, to serve him and to know his greatness. If you look at this passage, you're looking at the words. Um, David says, Lord God, a whole lot, right? And it reminds me when I was in college, there was this guy who was just, when he prayed, it was straight up like 10 Lord Gods per sentence, right? It was like, oh, Lord God, I pray, Lord God, that you, Lord God, would, it was just nonstop. That's not what's happening here. If you actually look at the passage, David changes it up. He says, Lord God, and in English, it's translated the same way. But in the verses we read, in the middle section, he doesn't say, Lord God, capital G-O-D. It says, capital Lord, lowercase g-o-d, right? So L-O-R-D, meaning Yahweh, and then God, Elohim. So what David says here in this section is not my Lord Yahweh. He says now Yahweh God, focusing not on him being his personal master, but on him being the only true God of the universe. There's significance here. There's a focus on how Yahweh is not just his Lord, but he's God over everything. See, there is this privilege to knowing that the God of the universe has chosen you and me. He's chosen us for redemption, for salvation, for forgiveness, for relationship with him. It should floor us as well. You need to know that if God chose to redeem you from your sin and reveal the truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel to you, then we don't get to choose which parts of our life he's got over. It's a privilege. It's a privilege. If you know the great privilege of those who have been chosen and redeemed by God, then you will see yourself as a blessed servant. In 1 Peter 2, Peter writes, Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. It's the great kind of a paradox of Christianity. You're freed to be a servant. And in that service, you find true freedom. As one commentator put it, these verses teach us that Yahweh grants his people freedom not for independence, but to belong to him. You know, a lot of times we talk about a consumer mentality in the church in the West. And I think it's prevalent, right? People, they shop for churches. They look at churches as if it's a store. What can I get from this church? What can I receive today? Where does it come from? Why do we feel this? Why do we want to have like Netflix style of church? We can just stream it at our convenience any time of the day, any time of the week. I think it comes from not understanding just how privileged we are to be God's servants. We read it in the scripture reading from Luke 17. Jesus says, as servants, right, right, you will be fed. You will have something to eat and drink. But there are things that God has for you to do. He says, will the master rather not say, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he has done what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. 
Jesus isn't saying that God won't take care of us, that there's no blessings here, but the first privilege is to even be a servant of God, to be given the opportunity to do our duty, to to, to serve the God of the universe. And so, brothers and sisters, you ought to be serving God if you are a Christian. If you're confused by that, you ought to be serving the church. You ought to serve others in the church. It doesn't have to be in every way, but in some way, serving the Lord and his people. Or you could watch kids, you can help set up, you can do sound, you can welcome others. There are lots of easy ways. And if you don't know, if you're just like, I, I can't do any of those things, just come to church on time and talk with someone and pray for them and encourage them in the worship of our great God. We have the privilege of having a relationship with God himself so that we can see his greatness as his servants. And this leads us to the final part of this passage. Verses 25 through 29, where we see David conclude his prayer and we see the priorities of a servant. The priorities of a servant. Let's look at verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. In this final section of David's prayer, He begins to talk about himself as a servant again. And if you're reading it for the first time or even for the 10th time, it can seem kind of repetitive, right? He's just kind of saying the same things that God said to him back to God. David is saying, do what you just said in the first half of this chapter you would do. And if you actually look at these two sections side by side, you're looking at the passage all together, you'll see that uh, there's a lot of parallels. Well, David is basically just saying exactly the same things in the same order to God. He prays to God what God had already proclaimed to him. So what do we see here about David as the Lord's servant? In his understanding of his position, in his understanding of the privilege of being a servant of God, he has this desire, this passion, that what God has said will come to pass. According to the words that God has spoken. You see it over and over again. Verse 25, For the word that you have spoken. Do as you have spoken. Verse 29, for you, O Lord God, have spoken. Verse 28, you are God, your words are true. On over and over again, David is saying, he's praying for God to do as he has spoken. If you guys have kids, or if you are a kid in this room, you probably have had the situation where you begin to ask your parents over and over again for something that they promised to you, right? If they've ever promised something good to you, like maybe a special gift or a trip to go get something you've been wanting, even something simple like that, you have a tendency to ask about that. I'm not talking about any kids in particular here, uh, just all of you. This is what happens. Why? Because you're so excited about it. Because they're looking so forward to it, they begin to ask. It's not because they doubt whether or not it will happen. Right? Are we going to buy that video game? Or are we still going to visit grandma and grandpa? They're not worried about whether it will happen, but they are excited for it to happen. They're passionate about it. This is what's on their mind. It is a priority to them. If you look at these verses 
closely, this is what David is doing. He's consumed by what the Lord has spoken. He believes it, and so he is excited and passionate about this is how he prays. His agenda is a God's revelation. God has given us promises and truth in his word. He has spoken. And so for us, as servants of the Lord, it's not just about filling our minds with the head knowledge of the Bible. It's having our affections change, our desires transformed, so that our focus and our passion and our, 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 our desire is for the things of God. For those who have walked with the Lord, who have a growing love for him, I always notice that for old Christians, they, they just have an increasing appreciation for and love the word of God. David shows us that the priorities of a servant are the words of the master. It seems kind of obvious, right? But what else could it possibly be? Or what else makes you the employee and someone else the boss except that you do what they said? What else makes you a servant and someone else the master except that their words are more important than your own? David knows the priority of a servant is the word of his master. And so this is how he prays. God, do according to your word. Do according to your will. He says in verse 27, Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. A lot of times I struggle in my prayer life to pray. I struggle to see how my prayers will be answered. Oftentimes when I'm really struggling with that, I realize I'm not praying at all according to God's will. I'm praying for the things I want. I'm not concerned with what he wants. And David here, he says he has courage and boldness to pray, not because he's just spouting out the desires of his heart, but because he is praying what he knows God wants. He's praying with confidence because he knows God will do what God wills to do. And so brothers and sisters, if we're going to put this into practice, we should have courage to pray in the same way as David, with faith-filled anticipation that God will do what God has promised to do to pray according to the word. That's why we pray for the gospel to go into the whole world. And we know this is what God will do. And we ask with confidence for the, for the church to prevail against the gates of hell, to, to bring people from death to life by the power of the gospel. And we have confidence that this is what God will do. And we pray in every situation, God, glorify yourself because we know in the scriptures that God is doing all things for his glory. And for our good. We pray with hope and expectation. Come Lord Jesus come. Because he's promised he will come. And make things right. As servants our greatest priorities and passions should be. The fulfillment of God's word. Making true of his will. To work and to live. And to ask according to the words. He has spoken. So who sets your priorities? And that's, that's the question. A million dollar question. Who sets your priorities at work, at home, at school, in your family, in your free time? And this is convicting to me as I thought about it, that I wrote it down in my sermon. But do I want my kids to be successful? To, to be rich in this world? Or do I want to be a faithful parent who gives them the discipline and instruction of the Lord? Do I want my salary or my title to increase? Or do I want to work as if for God and not for man? Not seeking the praise of man, but the pleasure of God. 
Do I want to be seen as righteous before others? Do I want people to think I'm more holy than I actually am? Or do I want to live in true, hidden integrity before God? The Bible is clear about all these things. What is the Lord's will? Is it our priority as well? What do you pray towards? What do you commit to? Do your priorities and your desires and your passions, do they reflect the words of our master? Maybe we need to know his word better, to be in the scripture, to know God through his revelation. David talks about, maybe we just need to realize our true identity as servants. John MacArthur, he wrote a book maybe over a decade ago, a couple decades now, called Slave. Um, It was kind of a um, controversial title. But in this book, he talks about the fact that this word for servant in the Bible, both in Hebrew and in Greek, it's the same word for slave. There's really no difference that you can be talking about either one. And this is what he says as a quote. Believers are not merely Christ's hired servants. They are his slaves belonging to him as his possession. He is their owner and master, worthy of their unquestioned allegiance and absolute obedience. His word is their final authority, his will, their ultimate mandate. The servant's priorities are the same as his master's. This is what David shows us in this prayer. So we see in this prayer the posture of a servant, a recognition of who we are and what we deserve being nothing. We see in it the privilege of a servant, that we get to know God, that we get to be redeemed, invited into a relationship with him. And we see the priorities of a servant, a dedication to the will of God, to the purposes of God, to the word of God. This is what David praised and prayed, and it should be so for us as well. So what happens at the end of The Prince and the Pauper? Tom, I already told you, he was the poor boy who got dressed up like the prince, He begins to live a pretty nice life, right? As you can imagine, all the food he wants, all the nice things that he could dream of. And though he's kind of a clueless prince, he eventually wins people over with common sense and just kind of his personable nature, his care for the everyman. He has a pretty great time as a prince. Edward, on the other hand, is not having such a good time. He goes back, he's dressed like a pauper, and he gets beat up by his family. He gets uh, mistreated. He experiences the oppression and poverty and injustice that he had never known existed in his own kingdom. He realizes not all is well for everyone. And then one day in the midst of this experiment, the king dies. King Henry passes away, and they're going to make Edward the new king. And so Tom, dressed up as the prince, goes to the coronation, and he is going to become the new king of England. And Edward shows up, and he says, I'm actually the true prince. I think if this novel were written in 2022, Tom would be like, nope, I'm actually the king. I'm not giving this up. You're just a nobody. But no, actually what happens in the novel, which is kind of surprising, is that Tom says, yeah, he's the prince. The two boys say that they did this thing. They they prove who they are. They switch back. And in the end, Prince Edward becomes the king. And Tom, the pauper, becomes a friend and one of his most trusted servants for the rest of his life. Would you rather be a king or a servant? See, brothers and sisters, if we understand what the Bible says, we will never be the king. We will never be like the Most High. We will never be God. That was the delusion and sin of Satan. 
But the true Prince of Heaven, the Son of God, did something incredible for us. Though he was rich, he became poor. And though he knew no sin, he became sin for us on the cross. And though he was over all, he submitted himself to be despised and rejected, to be abused and killed on the cross for us. The Lord redeemed us. He tore down the wall of separation between us and him. He opened up the gates of heaven and life. He gave us the right by believing in him to become children of God. For what? So that we who are nothing in ourselves who have been graciously chosen to witness and see his greatness, could become his blessed servants. Let's pray. Father God, we are amazed at the truth that you, the God of the universe, the Lord, the master of everything, the one from whom all greatness and goodness comes, would know us and give us the grace to know you. God, in Christ, we are the recipients of infinite, undeserved things. So we magnify him now. We, we want to lift up his name now. And we want to remember what he has done for us together.